What's your name? Cody Decker. What's your occupation? I'm technically a baseball player. When you're not playing baseball, what do you do? Everything. You might be wondering what somebody who technically is a baseball player and does everything on the side does. Well, he makes hilarious videos that go viral. He makes hilarious videos that do not go viral. He bartends. He does a whole lot of things in Los Angeles. And we're going to discuss with Cody Decker today on the inaugural edition of Life Around the Seams, what it's like to do all of those things while still pursuing your dream of playing Major League Baseball. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. All right, Cody. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being my guinea pig on the first edition of this podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. you you got to start at the top sometimes. All right, so let's start with the introduction. You were born in Santa Monica in 1987, graduated from Santa Monica High, went to UCLA, played baseball for four years, drafted by the Padres, 22nd round in 2009. He's now played 10 years of professional baseball in the following organizations. Padres, Royals, Rockies, Red Sox, Mets, and now the Diamondbacks. You forgot about the Milwaukee Brewers. I forgot about the Brewers. At the time of this recording, he's played 963 games in the minors, 3,216 at-bats. Actually, I wrote that down yesterday. You got your 3,217th after I wrote down this note. And his 195 home runs in the minor leagues are third most among active players. What? Who's beating me? I was the most. Dan Johnson and Chris Carter. Dan Johnson's in Mexico. That doesn't count. He's not an active player here. Somehow, that's what your notes say. And how many many does Chris Carter have? He has a few more than you. Do you count the Major League home runs on that list? Because if you do, that doesn't count. I'm going off what the PR guy of the Reno Ace is putting the game notes. Not yesterday, but the day before that. We're going to have to double-check this. He's also played eight glorious games and 11 magnificent at-bats in the Major Leagues. I wouldn't say they were magnificent. They were all kind (laughs) of off the bench and very hard to do. Off the field, dozens of videos. The most famous is when Cody and his teammates and his manager with the El Paso Chihuahuas convinced teammate Jeffrey and Cor that one of their teammates was deaf. We'll get into more of that later. He played for Team Israel in the 2013, uh, 2017 World Baseball Classic and 2013, right? Yeah, in the qualifier we played in that. He's hosted a very R-rated version of Pub Trivia. He has a Screen Actors Guild. There's a lot more, but I should eventually uh, actually start this thing. So uh, with all of that, like when, I, when my mom says, who is the first guest of your podcast, how should I describe you? Um, a renaissance man. Okay. A renaissance man with the chiseled good looks of like a young Sidney Applebaum. All right. Let's start with the early beginnings of this renaissance man. Uh, your parents. Uh, who are they? What do they do for a living? Jay and Terry Decker. My father was a, uh, my father was a uh, travel agent. Uh, and then that whole pesky thing called the internet came along and really kind of put a damper on the travel agency business. And then uh, my mom was a bank executive my entire life. And she just retired about two months ago. 
And uh, she, uh, they're both kind of living the life. They're traveling around. They're coming out and see me play as much as they can. Um, it's pretty. It's pretty cool. They're 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 very good people. They're good parents. Very supportive, um, especially when their son is 31 years old and still you know playing a 12 year old's game for a living or kind of a living. How much growing up with your mom, your dad, your brother, and your sister was baseball a part of the Decker household? And how much was movies or sketches or just Hollywood type filming stuff? That was kind of me and my neighbors. The Hollywood type. Sketches and stuff. We, my um, next door neighbors were a couple of twins. They were two years older than me. They're my oldest friends, and we uh, we made movies together growing up our whole our whole lives. Uh, their dad was a comedian and an actor, and and we just kind of he would always encourage us to like make new movies and do little things. We, what kind of camera do you use? Uh, just this cheap camcorder with that even had like the actual cassette tape, right? Um, and so let's just say editing was not exactly part of the thing. We had to shoot everything in sequence. Uh, handheld. Um, it was, you know, we worked very hard. We, we really liked it. We, we, we started a horror franchise series. We called it Daddy No. We based it on, uh, we based it on one of our uh, teammates' fathers, who we really liked, and but he scared the hell out of us. <laughs> okay. So we made it based on him. And uh, I don't know. It was just, uh, it was just something that we did. And uh, then you, then you hit that awkward teenage phase where you know all of a sudden I don't want anybody to look at me at all and I'm you know you're super self-conscious and those middle school years were a little rough and I kind of clammed up until I got to high school and then I joined theater and you know everything kind of changed and I kind of broke back out of my shell and became that you know that same kid I always was and uh what was big around my house was baseball and it was not because they were pushing me to do it it was just because I loved playing baseball I loved baseball I played baseball every day I would play Stoop ball and wiffle ball out front. My friends would never let me hit right-handed because they felt it was unfair, so I would hit left-handed. Um, it was just, you know, it's what I grew up doing. Like, every day, we just wanted to play baseball. And when football season came around, I just wanted to play baseball more. So I played on countless club teams. And, you know, I just, um, I never really wanted to do anything but baseball and, and uh, like, our little films. That's, like, was, that's what I was interested in. What did your baseball teammates think about your theater friends and what did your film slash theater friends think about you playing baseball very separate worlds they never really came it never really crossed paths basically uh, when i was in high when i was in high school i was starring in plays and uh i was starring in plays during the baseball season so my time was very very occupied and um you know i was starring in the music man we had opening night after i had a day game and then I had a matinee show the next day after we had a morning game, but the morning game went 10 innings. And so the play had to be delayed 30 minutes. And I'm, I look over the left field wall, and there's the director of the play just staring at me while I'm catching this game. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I'm like, I, but I homered in the game uh, and doubled, and my, my, uh, the director got the ball and went out and stage like, listen, and the, the, the theater holds like 3,000 people and. and in Santa Monica, theater was a very big deal because um, we were part of a, a they called the Civic, Santa Monica Civic Light Opera. It was a it was a theater company, so it was uh, he had to like let everybody know. Listen, the play's happening. We're very sorry. He's on the field right over there. He this is his home run ball from earlier in the game. He will be here to perform as Professor Harold Hill for you. And I sprinted up, panicked. Got in my stuff. I'm like, let's start to play. Let's start to play. He's like, do you need some time to get into character? I'm like, no, I know how to do this. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Like, it's 45 minutes late. Let's knock this out. 
And then we had another show that night. So it was just uh, it, it, that was the only time they re- they'd ever really cross paths. Uh, but I, I thought one thing helped the other. You know, um, if you, all you do is sit around and think about baseball all the time, you're going to make yourself nuts. Um, this game can easily do that to you. So I think it's good to have other hobbies, other interests, um, and uh, it kind of balances you out. Let, let me go back to those early films that you made with your neighbors. Where are those now? When was the last time you looked at any of those? I'm not going to lie to you. I do not know. Okay. I think they have. They must have them somewhere. Uh, we made we made uh, about a 10-part uh, anthology series of Daddy No movies. We made uh, another one called Clown Control, where we played uh, basically, uh, uh, you know, like we were like members of the pound, but instead of going after dogs, we go after killer clowns. Okay. Pretty dark for, uh, for <laughs> <Right>. third graders. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you're filming these on the mean streets of Santa Monica? Oh, man, yeah. It was just so scary. And, and then, uh, and then um, you're down to the promenade as tourists are going, what are these kids doing? The, why is that one wearing makeup and <laughs> wielding a machete? And why is the other one have a video camera? And it was just, uh, what else did we do? We, uh, we made a, a shot-for-shot remake of Cool Runnings. Okay. Uh, and there were parts where we got lazy that we just... <laughs> We just cut in scenes from the actual movie, right? <laughs> and then we did things where we cut in scenes from the actual movie with us walking in front of a screen of the scene that we're doing. Like, it was a really funny, but, oh, so ridiculous. It's not like there's bobsledding courses in Santa Monica no, that you could use. Oh, no, we, we used uh, boogie boards going downstairs. Okay. Let's just say there were some mishaps, <laughs> uh, painful mishaps. But, uh, yeah, those were, those, uh, that's, how, that's where that all started. Okay, so out of high school, what are your options for what to do at the next stage of your life, and why ultimately did you end up at UCLA? Uh, baseball was always the option. There was no, there was no other thing. Um, I was going to be playing baseball, and I was going through the whole recruiting process. You know, I, I led, I, uh, I led California in home runs twice, the state, and um, you know, I kind of was in a good place to kind of get this going. Um, and UCLA made, and I was talking to many schools, but UCLA is where I ended up going. Uh, played four years there. Um, every year was great, except for my junior year. We were ranked the one in the nation, um, and I had a re- I faltered that year badly. Um, I think I a lot of self-imposed pressure on myself. Thinking about getting drafted? Yeah, I, I, I was told, like, you're, you know, with the year you had last year, you'll go in the fourth round this next year. Because I hit 14 home runs that year. I had a monster year. Freshman year was a good year. And this was just, I don't know, I just started good, and then I just, i it was like sprinting in quicksand, and the whole team was underperforming. Now, we were still good, but I think there was a lot of self-imposed pressure between all the players, even the coaching staff at the time. I think it was just, we weren't playing the baseball we could have played. Was that the year when Trevor Bauer and Garrett Kohler in your rotation, or was no, that your no, senior they, year? No, they came in my senior year. Okay. And um, so that next year, you know, I kind of got back to form. You know, we had a new hitting coach. We had a... Uh, Rick Randerhook from Fullerton came in, um, a no-nonsense guy, constantly screaming at you, still screams at me to this day. <laughs> okay. um, love him to death. You know, he, uh, he kind of, um, you know, he, it wasn't that he'd need to whip me back in shape, but he, he told me right out the gate, I'm going to be super hard on you, and I need you to be able to take it for the good of the other guys, because mm-hmm. I need them to see that. That if I'm a jerk to the, to the guy who's been around the longest... Then, and he can take it, then everyone else can take yeah, it. Yeah, and, and 
then I went and I did it, and I had a monster year. I hit like 21 or 22 home runs. I had a killer year. I hit like 335. And, um, you know, he, I, I credit him a lot for it. It wasn't that. It was, it was just a different type of feel. We were on the same side. We were almost like putting on a show for the guys, and, and Hookie would go really far sometimes. Okay. <laughs> really far. Um, but it was, it was great. I loved them, and I loved the team. And, uh, you know, I kind of got back to form, got a chance with the Padres after that. But they, after, after high school, baseball was always the plan. I was playing nonstop, you know. I had no at the time no real aspirations to keep acting. Okay, all right. So let's uh, let's talk about draft day. It's two thousand nine. You go in the twenty second round, six hundred and fifty fourth overall. Is Des- that all? That's all. Uh, describe where you were, who's around you, how you learned the news, and sort of you know what do you remember about that day? Um, I remember that I felt felt as though I was the best power hitter in the country um, at the time. Uh, but everyone kept telling me since I was a senior and my main position was first base. Um, and it wasn't that I couldn't play third or left field, which I played both and catch. It was just I played mostly first base at UCLA. So perception is always reality in baseball. That's kind of a thing. So I'm looking at it, I'm like, well, yeah, but I just hit 21 home runs in like the best league in college baseball. And everyone team was like, well, it's also you're a senior. You don't have a bargaining chip. You know, we have a policy we don't. We don't give a signing bonus for more than $1,000 to a senior sign. Is that what everyone said or just a few teams? That's what every team I spoke to said. Really? To which I'm like, really? I'm like, okay, well, it is what it is. Um, and some teams are like, you, you know, your numbers say you should be going like in this round, but you're going to fall pretty far because of the year you had previously and, and uh, you know, you're, you're, you're a 5'11 first baseman. And a lot of people think you're a metal bat hitter. To which I'm like, Whatever. Right. So after the 10th round goes off, I just, I was at UCLA at the time. I was at, on campus. I just said to hell with it. And I went downstairs to the, the dungeon, the old weight room at UCLA. It was this great little underneath underground weight room. I loved it. And I was just lifting. And I remember I was doing squats and deadlifts. I was doing this big superset of squats and deadlifts. And uh, I get a phone call like mid squatting. And I put the right, rack the weights. And I'm just, for some reason, I'm just in a mood. Right. But I'm also like kind of focused on lifting. And I get a phone call, and it's like, hey, this is uh, Brendan House of the San Diego Padres. Just want to let you know we just drafted you in the 22nd round. And I just went, sweet. <laughs> Click. <laughs> I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> Whatever. i got to finish this lift. So I finish my lift. I call my mom afterwards, and I, let the, let, I just process the news while I'm finishing my lift. I call the scout back. I'm like, hey, just finish my lift. So what do you want to talk about? He's like, we, we just drafted you. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. You told me that part. <laughs> like, what, what, uh, what's next? Well, let's uh, let's. Get it going. We're going to give you a $1,000 signing bonus. I'm like, cool. <laughs> right. I guess that's not the important thing. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and let's focus on the uh, actual important things. And that, that, that you drafted me, and I'm going to go play professional baseball. Great. Um, so I, I went upstairs, told my parents. We all, me and my other buddies who were with me on the team at UCLA who were all drafted. One was drafted by the Royals. Another was drafted by, like, the Diamondbacks and others draft just random teams. We all went out that night and had had a little party and celebration. It was great and got right back to right back to work and uh, left for Arizona. About how much time would that be? Because the drafts what in like early to mid June. Well, my season was over. Um, I I left like about a week later. Okay. Um, maybe even sooner than that, and got right to work. So when you walk into a clubhouse as a professional baseball player for the first time, I'm guessing that would be Peoria, Arizona. It was. What, 
What do you think, and what's that moment like? Um, you know, it was not. Uh, there was no glitz, no glamour, nothing at all. You, I literally showed up at 9 a.m. living in a hotel that was right across the street from from the comp, sports complex. And um, you know, I get there and I had to take a, get a physical. Uh, that was that was it. It was me and like 14 other players who were just recently drafted. All all of them college guys. Um, and a lot of us were from the Pac-10. We played against each other, so we had like Juan de Olabisi. He was this just massively large, uh, looked more like a football player or Apollo Creed specifically in Rocky IV. Okay. Just like he would walk around the clubhouse shirtless and everyone would stop what they're doing and watch him walk by because his abs had abs. Okay. Um, uh, he played at Stanford. And uh, I had Dylan Tonneson, who was the catcher over at Cal. So, and uh, we had another guy named uh, Cameron Monger, who I believe played at University of New Mexico. And so we were just, uh, we all formed kind of this little group that we were kind of in this together because we were all college guys who were drafted late and kind of not really a priority for anyone. And we kind of banded together and had a lot of fun playing. And we, we really beat up on some teams because we're a bunch of guys who were 21, 22 years old out of college, and we're all playing in the Arizona League. You know, which is a league usually for younger guys. Right. I mean, not that we weren't young, but it was just... It's mostly high school guys or guys who are just from the Dominican for the first time in their life. Yeah. Um, But our team was surprisingly filled with a lot of college guys. And uh, it was a good group, and we we, we played played our hearts out. We had a lot of fun doing it. And, uh, you know, if you've ever seen the Arizona League, it does not exactly feel like professional baseball. You're playing in front of nobody. It's morning games, right? No, at the time it was still night games. Okay. Uh, I've heard other years they've done morning games, but... uh, yeah, so we're just, you know, we're playing in all the big league stadiums, uh, spring training stadiums, and, uh, you know, but we're playing in front of really nobody. There's no one at the games, uh, maybe maybe 10 people. Uh, it's mostly just it's mostly just members of the organization themselves watching. So you did get seven games with the Fort Wayne Tin Caps of the Midwest League, where there actually is people who pay money and yes, watch. Yes. How did that feel? Um, great. <laughs> really nice. I, I'm like, oh, my God, what is this? <laughs> What is this magical land called Fort Wayne? <laughs> no, it, it was just uh, I, I got the Arizona League MVP. I had a great season. And they called me in the office and said, hey, Fort Wayne's going to playoffs. They're going to win the championship. You're going to join the team. You're not going to play because they're going to play all these guys most likely. But, you know, it's kind of we want to make sure you're rewarded. Get out of there. Take a look uh, and, uh, you know, win a ring for the year that you just had. Right. I'm like, oh, cool. That's different. Right. So I went there knowing I wasn't really going to play much. Got a couple starts and went through the playoffs thing, helped out in any way I could. Um, but, you know, there were no, there's no pinch hitting. as DH league. So I didn't really get in there. Um, but it was a blast, and I got to know this next, these group of guys that would end up being my teammates for the next five years. Um, and we would go on for years to beat up everybody. And it was a team filled with guys who also were not top tier number one prospects they were all college guys except for maybe jeff decker who was probably the biggest prospect okay jeff decker and drew cumberland they were the big prospects and uh you know after that year we won that championship we went over to um we went to lake elsinore together we uh, high a and we just we beat up on teams like you wouldn't believe this team was it wasn't even fair to play us and we didn't win the championship because we lost a real fluke game in the playoffs. We were winning by like three in the bottom of the ninth at Rancho Cucamonga. 
and that was the Angels at the time. And I remember they had Trout on the team. They had a few other big studs on the team. But we had Brad Brock pitching, and Brad Brock was the single best, uh, especially in the minor leagues, the best uh, re- you know, closer in baseball. He broke the Midwest League saves record, the Cal League saves record, and then the Texas League saves record in consecutive years. <laughs> That's pretty good. He, I think he blew zero saves. That game, we had two outs, nobody on, and out of nowhere, he gives up like five hard hit balls in a row. The guy's never given up a hard hit in two years. It was just a fluke. And we're just sitting there, and they we hit a walk-off double, and we're like, what just happened? Didn't we win? It, it just it, it switched like that. It was crazy. Um, and then next year we went to the Texas League, and it wasn't you know, in uh, San Antonio, Texas, all of us. And it just, that team, it wasn't fair to play us. We won 100 games. We just decimated teams. And it was the same group of guys. And it was no, not, not really a prospect in the bunch. Like Brad Brock, he's been in the big leagues for years now, but Brad was uh, – Brad was like a 43rd rounder, you know, and he, he had a big chip on his shoulder about it. And I loved him. He was a competitor. He's a great pitcher. That whole team was a bunch of grinders who uh, really knew how to win and knew how to play together. And it was, it was, we had a blast. So I don't want to go through all the different stops, but because you talked about a lot of them anyways, but single A and double A, but describing the off season, you know, you got a thousand dollar signing bonus. What do you do in the off season in order to eat, to survive, in order to, you know, where do you live? How, how do you maintain? Well, first you got to think about how do I eat and survive during the season <laughs> right? alone. You're stealing meals from the clubhouse any chance you get. Um, but in the off season, so now that's where you got to start getting pretty clever. Um, you know, you're a guy like me, didn't sign for any money. You know, this moment, the minute the season ends, the paychecks stop. And at the time, it's not like those paychecks were enough to pay for anything. So I, uh, I had to get, you know, random odd jobs. I worked as everything. I worked as a bouncer for a year. I was bartended for an off-season. I started doing a trivia show. Um, and it, it's not your normal pub trivia, because I think pub trivia is boring and stupid. I, I made a, litera- a literal show, that I, like a traveling circus. Okay. And uh, Describe this traveling circus. Um, videos, music? A lot of videos, a lot of fan interaction. I give away points. I would give away points for... I would play certain songs, and I'd be like, uh, like say, third round is the music round. But it's really a general knowledge round because I, I might play a song and I'll ask you a question about the song or who sings it. Or I might like say, that was Africa by Toto. What is the largest country by square feet in Africa? Uh, but then I might play like Mr. Roboto by Styx. And I'm like, okay, whoever gets on stage right now and gives me the best robot dance gets an extra two points. You'll have 15 people up there trying to out-robot the other one. And the best part is when people are trying to out-robot each other, they don't try and get more robotic. They just start going faster. Right. And it's the funniest thing in the world to watch people trying to out-robot, out-speed robot each other. Um, so it's a very interactive show. I would give away you know, extra points for, or like a, I'd give away a big prize. I'd stop at like a... a, a What's a store, a Spencer's or, a, or an Oz, and I would get, like, I'd spend $20 and just buy the most useless crap. Right. Like, just useless things. And I'd put them in a box, and then I would steal an old VHS from my parents' house. So I would go through it. If you guys have the funniest slash possibly most offensive team name, you can win the following. And I'd go through the filled things, and, and it's just, like, a sponge. One, that, one size that says face, the other size that says ass. 
Because part of the best part of trivia is coming up with a ridiculous name that's offensive. Yeah. That's like, one of the best parts just, of pub trivia. And it's always important to be very topical. Yes. Like, very topical. Like, so, but I'm going through all the box. I called it the box of love. And at the very end, and yes, the crown jewel of this piece. The reason you are all competing today. You guessed it. A used VHS copy, copy of the 1992 classic Beethoven. That's right. <laughs> Stole it from my parents' house today. All of this can be yours if you're sad and depraved to come up with a horrific team name. And it worked. It worked. It got crowds going. And, you know, uh, there was a place I worked at called South, which no longer exists, but I used to, we used to pack that place in with like 130 to 170 people. It was nuts. And, um, you know, I, I, I incorporated over the years a lot of different things. Like my, my sister-in-law is a choreographer uh, for a burlesque group. So I would have the burlesque dancers come in. I would, I would hire them to dance in between rounds while I'm grading papers right. just to keep people, like, entertained. Yeah. Fun. Um, and, uh, you know, we just uh, – it, it was a madhouse. I made it a madhouse. And uh, I did that, and it, it helped pay the bills to get me to the next season. I would give a lot of hitting lessons, a lot of baseball lessons, work a lot of baseball camps. I would help out at UCLA even though that didn't pay. I, would, I, would, I just did everything I possibly could to kind of just make ends meet. And then I started getting little acting gigs. Um, and the weird thing is when you get a SAG card, it's this weird catch-22. You can't get a SAG job unless you're in SAG. But you can't get the card. You can't get the card unless you get a SAG job. Right. So it's just this, this makes no sense. This entire process <laughs> makes no sense. Um, so I had to get lucky. Um, so a buddy of mine worked in commercials. He just said, hey, there's a baseball commercial coming out in a couple, uh, that they're going to audition for. You want to go? So I went there, and I just said my resume. <laughs> and they're like, okay, so you're an actual baseball player? <laughs> right. like, yes. He's like, what, what level are you at? I'm like, well, I, this was like 2012. I'm like, I'm in AAA. Um, I had 30 home runs last year. Uh, been knocking on the big league door for a little bit. Uh, what if they had said you don't look like a baseball player? How demoralizing would, would that have been? been? No, it would have been like... What do you do? <laughs> I've heard that my whole career. Right. I don't need it coming from you. Uh, but no, I had a beard at the time. That helped. Yeah. Because beards are very baseball-y. Yes, they are. Um, so, yeah. So I, 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 uh, <laughs> I uh, got this gig in this uh, commercial. And I didn't know what commercials paid. And it was a national commercial. And it aired on like opening night. And it aired all over. It was a Head & Shoulders commercial. And I ended up making like more. I, I made more money. Doing this commercial than I did at this point, like four full seasons wow. of professional baseball. Um, I made like, I hate, I, it was like $23,000. That funded my entire season. Right. Like, I was like, oh my God, th- th- this is. I can I, eat at Chili's. I could, like, eat a meal today. <laughs> like, I can, I can eat healthy. <laughs> For the first time in my career, I could eat healthy in a season. Um, it, so, and then I, I got the SAG card. I started booking some more stuff. And, uh, by a chance thing, so I, you know, I was a, in college. I was a, uh, also a film student, and I was, you know, I made a lot of. I still throughout theater and everything that we talked about earlier. I made films too. I uh, made a bunch of them. Um, dramas, comedies, anything I could like try and cut my teeth on to get better at handling a camera. You know, studying film method and and just you know, colors, shapes, anything I can to, you know, tell a story without having to speak the story to an audience. So, um, I was one off season. We were just, um, you know what I just realized? I had a point. I can't remember. Oh, that's what it was. Okay, so I was given a lesson. Right. And uh, one of my favorite directors, this guy named Joe Carnahan, 
He's a director of a movie that I saw in high school. Now, every Thursday night in high school, I would go to this really grungy theater by myself and see a movie. And it was always like some art house picture. Well, this one week, they were playing this movie called Narc. First time writer-director uh, like of a serious movie. It was starring Ray Liotta and um, Jason Patrick. I go and see it. I'm not expecting much. And I was blown away. I, like, I was like weeping leaving the movie. I was like, it really hit me hard. And after that, the guy made another movie called Smoking Aces, which was almost like this grungy um, grindhouse movie. Fell in love with that movie. And then, then, he, then he did the A-Team, which I really enjoyed. I love the A-Team. I love the A-Team. And especially if you see the director's cut, the, the R-rated director's cut, it is fantastic. Like, they, there's so, like if you see the release version, it's kind of choppy a little bit. Like, it doesn't flow all the way through. But this one does. You, you see the director's cut. It's amazing. So I'm watching... I'm, I'm, I'm getting a I'm getting a phone call from my buddy who's the head coach at New Roads High School. He's like, hey, uh, are you still giving lessons? He's yeah, I'd like to book a lesson for a guy. I said, great, just let me know. And I forgot about it. I, I put it in my phone, said I had a lesson that night, but it didn't have a name. So I get a phone call. He's like, hey, this is Joe Carnahan. I'm on my way over to the field right now. I'm like, okay. Jo- Joe Carnahan? That Joe? I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, okay, well, I'm here. Just come whenever you like. Hang up the phone. I'm like, like I say, his name was Joe Carnahan, like my favorite director, Joe Carnahan. Nah, no, no, no. And all of a sudden, five minutes later, Joe Carnahan walks in with his son. I'm like, it's, it's Joe Carnahan, dude. I love Narc, right? And I, but I didn't say anything. But I'm giving lesson to his kid. He's watching me give lesson to his kid. And you know, if you know me, you know I. Even while I'm working, I'm not taking things too seriously. I'm working with the kid, and I'm, I'm making fun of him a little bit. And he's getting it back to me. I'm like, hey, listen, let's have some fun. We're gonna work. I'm going to give you as much information as I possibly can that can help you. I'm not going to turn you into a robot. I want to make you the best you you can be. Um, we'll make some adjustments, but nothing crazy. And I'm going to throw a lot of information at you today. But I'm going to try and water it down by let's making sure let's keep this fun. Kid's like 14. And so we had a great lesson, and I was just making the kid laugh, and Joe was laughing, laughing his ass off behind him the whole time. And Joe's like, God, you know, you ever do any acting? I'm like... It's why? funny you ask. Why, yes, I do. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. I wasn't trying to give him an audition here, but it, 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 but it was just like, yeah, you're, you're hilarious. You're, you're also a good-looking kid. I was sh- I had a sh- I, I have a, Listen, audience, I have a very large beard at this moment, and my hair is very unkempt. Um, but when I, when I cleaned up my beard, there's a decent, there's a decent jawline going on. <laughs> and um, it's, I'm in season, so I'm not quite as cut as I normally am. So at this point of the year, I'm in, always in very good shape. And he's looking at me. He's like, you're a good-looking kid, too. Like, we, I'd, I'd like to we, – we should talk. And then me and Joe just kind of sparked up a friendship because we would talk about films all the time. And I was just like, dude – because it started when I – he's just – I said, listen, when you called me and you said the name Joe Carnahan, I'll, my first thought was NARC is one of my favorite movies. And I wrote a book – I wrote a movie review of NARC when I was in high school for a project. He's like, can you find it? I'm like, I'll try. <laughs> right. was, it's like 15 years ago, man. I don't think I can find it, but I'll give it to my, my dad. Um, and, you know, uh, we just sparked up a friendship. And it, he, you know, he does movies. He's shooting a movie right now that I, uh, you know, I read the script for two years ago. Um, he's, uh, he, he had me in mind for a part, but then I decided this old baseball thing's going to keep going. <laughs> right. And then... Um, you know, but then he called me one day and he's like, "Hey, I have a part for you in my show." And it was a show called State of Affairs, starring Katherine Heigl, and it was on NBC. He's like, "It's a small role, but I want you to do it. I want to see how you handle it. 
consider it like an audition for future things. And I said, oh, great. And I, he said, I did well. He said, oh, I'm going to put you in things from now on. You did great. Um, I'm like, well, great. That's wonderful. He hasn't put anything in anything <laughs> since. But he did say one thing four years ago. Right. <laughs> so who knows? Uh, I love the guy to death, and uh, we had a we had a we had a good time doing that. And it's just these are the type of things. How do I put it? It's almost like I've kind of fallen into some things in the off seasons, uh, and it's very hard to kind of fall into these things and uh, find these things because if you're you know you're at, in the off season, you're only there for like five months, so no one's going to hire you for a legitimate job for five months. You got to leave. Um, like, it even comes to be a problem for my trivia shows. My trivia shows, which will book in a place. Well, places don't want a guy for five months. They want a year-round thing so they can keep the thing going. So I, I'm going to build up a whole thing there where we're going to get 100 people there every week, and then it ends. Right. And I understand that. As a business model, it's not really conducive. So let me ask you more about the trivia end. So once baseball season starts, for people who listening to this, once you get to AAA, it's mostly flights, but AA, single A, and the lower levels of the minor leagues, you're always on buses. How much were you able to do this, uh, this trivia on bus trips? A lot. I've done more bus, I've done a bus trivia this year. Um, now, like you said, in AAA, not a whole lot of bus trips, but in Reno, we do bus to Fresno. So we bust over to Fresno, and I ran a bus trivia for the guys. Uh, it's a lot of fun. $5 buy-in, guys. Let's all have some fun. Okay. Winner, winner, winner take all. Six rounds. And I've refined my uh, trivia show to such an extent that it's basically video-based. Um, in between rounds, I play a lot of clips. I edit together a lot of funny clips of like that have to do with the round you just did. Things like that. And uh, you know, it was a lot of fun um, to do that. I've, I've done that for years now, uh, bus trivias for long bus trips. All right, so let's get into your time at AAA. Yes. Because this is when people like me start to hear about this guy named Cody Decker. But before we talk about the Tucson Padres, your manager was Pat Murphy. Explain what makes Pat Murphy a different manager and how him being the manager of the Tucson Padres helped flourish what we're about to talk about. Okay, so Pat Murphy. Pat Murphy, head coach at Arizona State my entire time at UCLA. I hated Pat Murphy with a red-hot fire that almost still boils within my, my inner chest to this day. And then he joined the Padre organization, and I fell in love with him. Now, my first year in AAA, I actually played for Terry Kennedy in Tucson. But then the next year in Tucson, Pat Murphy calls me, and he's like, I'm going to be the manager in AAA. Looking forward to managing you. I'm like, I am not necessarily looking forward to playing for you. <laughs> I still, I still have like a lot of grudge that I held yeah. against you. Plus, I kind of want to be in the major leagues, Pat. Yeah, like, well, who's you to say that I'm going to be a Triple A? Why do you think so low of me? Uh, it's not low, but uh, Pat Murphy, my my God, this guy. One, he's a lunatic, but I think he'd be the first to really admit that. Um, but he's also he's brilliant. He's really brilliant. He really is good at getting the best out of his players. And he keeps it fun. Now, if you know, if you've been around AAA, you have. Um, you know that AAA does not always lend itself to the most positive of environments. Um, a clubhouse can really be, be torn to pieces by a couple of bad eggs, you know, a bad attitude. Uh, you know, it's, and it's really easy. It's easy to fall in that trap because you're so close to the pinnacle, but you are so far away from the pinnacle. It's like I always equate it to being like a child with fingerless gloves, like that's on the outside 
of like in the snow of a Christmas dinner and he sees this family enjoying the Christmas and I'm just clawing on the window like it's right there I can I can come in too but you can't um, and most of the people in that clubhouse think they should be inside having dinner right oh, now absolutely everyone does and you kind of have to because if you don't think that what are you doing here you know uh, so you have to have a good amount of confidence but this game is the f- this this game will humble you faster than anything in the world. So that's but that's really easy in AAA. Guys are upset about their pay. Guys are upset. Travel, travel is PCL travel is brutal. It really is. Like it sounds nice. Oh, you're flying everywhere. No, these are 3 a.m. wake up calls to get to 6 a.m. flight to then fly through Vegas to then fly through Fresno to then fly up to Tacoma. Yeah, it's it's tricky. Um, there's a lot of things that don't lend itself to positivity. But Pat Murphy was. A guy who could really rally the troops and to do something, um, you know, to really turn a clubhouse into something really fun. And uh, and it reminded me how fun this is and how fun this this should be. And in doing so, we as a team played better. And that was always the thing that he always said. He had had this quote, and I loved this quote. Um, and I still try to use it and try to apply it to this day. And I, th- I sometimes I, I have trouble doing it, but he, his 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 rules to baseball were these three things, three steps: prepare to play good, play good, and then number three, no matter what the outcome, treat yourself good. And he's like, and number three is the hardest to do for all of us because if you have a good day, it's very easy to treat yourself well. But if you have a bad day, you know, unless you're one of the guys that's pointing at fingers at every other direction. I've always been pretty good to point the finger at myself when I have a bad day. Like last night, I came in a pinch hit, and I struck out. I had a good at bat. I liked my swing. I liked my dress, but I was a little late on this guy's fastball. I was furious with myself for about two hours, you know, because pinch hitting is really hard to come off the bench cold and face a guy later in the game who's thrown pretty hard or got a nasty wipeout slider. And I felt I had a good at bat, and I really liked what I was doing up there. I liked my swings. I liked everything, but I, I didn't succeed. And when you don't succeed, it's really easy to, you know, get down on yourself. Um, you, know, you know, this game can really do that to you. And Pat was the first guy I ever played for who really understood that part three of this, this story. Where he's just like, no matter what, like, you're going to fail. And you're going to fail a lot. No matter what, you've got to treat yourself good. And I always loved that. Um, and I will always respect and love Pat Murphy for those three years I played for him because, um, you know, I learned a lot from him. I learned um, I learned that this can still be fun. I learned that, you know, baseball is a especially when you're young, baseball is not just a game that we play that's stupid. It's also It's also a good way of teaching young people how to be an adult and how to be the better, the person you can become or want to become. And that doesn't necessarily mean a major leaguer, just the person itself. You know, it's a great metaphor to, you know, this game, you know, you're going to lose so much. But if you can keep going and be that person all the time, then, you know, I'll, I'll respect. Pat was the first guy to really make me realize that. And I'll, 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 I will forever be in debt to him for it. So while you were playing for Pat in 2013 for the Tucson Padres, you made a film called Brad. <laughs> Tell us about the idea behind Brad and how this film was executed. Okay, well, Brad, Brad Osmus is the most handsomest man 
in the history of professional baseball. He now works in the front office for the Angels, former manager of the Detroit Tigers and former special assistant for the San Diego Padres. And if you don't know what a special assistant does, neither do they. Right. <laughs> I remember, I remember you used to ask him. He's just like, Deck, I really hope you get to the big leagues for like 10 years because that way you can get my job, which is, means you show up once a month, they pay you, and you can spend the entire offseason on some sweet island. I'm like, what do you do here? Yeah. What do you do? He's like, well, I'm technically the catching coordinator. You're not the catching coordinator. We don't have a catching coordinator. He's like, yep, I only show up two weeks out of the entire season. Isn't that great? Yep. Not really. Uh, he was also my manager for the first go-around of Team Israel. So we actually developed some sort of rapport. And Pat and him always had this great, uh, like, frenemy rivalry. Because Murph would try and, like, work with catchers. And then Brad would interject. And, and Murph would be like, oh, you haven't been here all year. What are you doing? <laughs> right. it, was just, it was this great thing. So it, it became this thing. So uh, since Brad, we heard, was coming into town. So I and Pat, me and Murph thought it was a great idea for me to go make a life-size, card, life-size cardboard cut out of Brad. And hide it everywhere we know he's going to be. So I found this photo of him and the Dodgers in a full crouching position. I thought it was the funniest thing I could do. I went to Kinko's. I got a first. I I, I went to like a, an appliance store and I found a uh, uh, a big um, box for a refrigerator. And I asked him, "You using this box anymore?" He said, "No." I said, "Can I have it?" They, they said, "Sure." <laughs> right. So I cut up the box and I I went to Kinko's and I printed a life size thing of the Brad thing and I just super glued it on and I cut out the thing very meticulously during an off day. I might add. <laughs> You heard of uh, fat heads? Well, this is like the fat body of. <laughs> oh yeah, I went. I went very far on this, and um, so Brad came into town, and we went ahead. It, we, I, we started hiding it in places we knew he was going to be. Le- he thought it was funny. I don't think he really thought it was funny. I, I don't. I don't think so at all, actually. But he had a good smile about it, and didn't kill me, which was nice. And then. Um, so later in the year goes around, and I'm making these kind of like short little trailers, but I'm just being very lazy with them. But uh, they're, they're, I'm putting them online, and they're beginning. Are you using your phone, or what are you using? Just my phone, whatever's yeah. available to me. You know, because I, I don't, believe it or not, I do not travel around with a state-of-the-art, like, camera. So I, uh, later in the year, we had some big leaguers rehabbing, and I kind of got called in the office. like, hey, you're not going to play much over this next few weeks, so you're going to have to wear it and, you know. But okay, so I just trained hard. I got to the field every day, worked out, did, stayed ready to pinch hit and all that. Well, I had this life-size Brad Osmus <laughs> cardboard cutout. I go to Murph. I'm like, Murph, can I make a movie about the cardboard cutout as if it's Brad as a roving instructor and he's in town and we just treat the cardboard cutout as if it's Brad? And he just goes, why haven't you done it twice? <laughs> said, Thank you. And so, that's what makes Pat Murphy Pat Murphy. Yeah, and, and so I, I did it, and I, it was very, if you watch the film, it's very inspired by uh, The Office. It's, a, it's, a, it's an Office parody, basically. Right. A lot of the shots, a lot of, a lot of talking head shots, um, where, and it's just me making fun. No, I wouldn't say making fun. If anything, it's the biggest puff piece in the world about Brad Osmus. It is about how he is great at everything, the best-looking man alive, and inspiring. Like, it, I am. Brad says he likes the movie. Do you believe him? No, because I will say, we, I, I did throw a truly unnecessary dig at the end of the movie. <laughs> truly unnecessary. Didn't need it. It was the only thing I really thought about omitting. But it was so funny that I kept it in. And the end credits was his at bat during the Kerry Wood twenty strikeout game, and it is 
one of the worst at bats of all time. And hey, 19 other strikeouts too that day. Yeah, right? but this is the only one I showed, <laughs> right. and it's not a good one. Uh, and he uh, he did say, "Oh, Deck, it was really funny, really, really good, really good." Didn't really think you needed the strikeout though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that was probably too far. But uh, so what happened was I was terrified when I released it. Terrified. Wait, before you talk about that, uh, what did you edit it on? How long did it take you to edit, and did you edit it on like iMovie, or what did you use? You know, I used, it was an early stages of i. it was just an early model of iMovie. Okay. It, it was lazy. I, I wouldn't say lazy. We worked really hard on it, but, you know, there was only so much you could do with iMovie at the time. Right. But I edited it on there with a buddy. We put it together. It was, it was really funny. I, I watched it recently, and I'm like, this is still really funny. I watched it two nights ago, yeah, and I was laughing. Like, this is funny. It's a little long. I think I should have, you know, looking back, I, I, I've learned since then to really not fall in love with my own material so much. There's some things that really should have been cut out. This should have been two minutes shorter. But it's seven minutes of funny stuff. And uh, we really had a good time doing it. So when I released it, I remember when I, remember when I released it. This one morning, and I remember releasing it, and I'm just terrified. I wake up that morning. I release it like the night before. The morning I wake up, I have it's 5 a.m. I have a litany of emails and text messages from Padre Brass. Okay, and I'm like, oh no, oh no, I am in so much trouble. But I do know that Pat Murphy okayed this, so I have someone to throw under the bus with me. <laughs> and it was a it every message was. This is hilarious. Keep doing these. Okay. Finally, someone got Brad. Back, got Brad. Great one. And I'm like, oh god, ah, what a relief. I thought I'm like, I am so fired. Uh, but no, it was it was great. It turned out great, and uh, got a little bit of press. Not, not a ton, but it, it was funny, and it really worked out well. Okay, so now it's 2014, and you're back at AAA. Unfortunately, and Tucson has moved to El Paso. Mm -hmm. However, their new ballpark is not yet ready, which means that you and your teammates have to spend about the first five to six weeks on the road. You played technically a homestand back in Tucson as you're waiting for the ballpark to get finished in El Paso. And Pat Murphy is once again the manager, and he decides that he wants to play a prank on Jeff Francoeur. How do I put this? This was not the first time we did this prank. Okay. It was just the first time I filmed it. And also for people, Jeffrey and Core at this point has like 10 years of major league yeah, service he's time. Actually, he's actually at nine. Okay. And he's like, he's trying to get back to the big leagues. Where he, honestly, he belonged. He was a great player, great teammate, nicest guy in the world. I love him to death. That being said, okay, so I get a phone call from Murph. He's like, hey, Jeff Rancourt is joining our team. Just got phone with him. Seems like a great guy and a perfect candidate to do the deaf guy prank. I'm like, you think so? He's like, I don't know. Come on, he's been around for a while. He's like, Deck, I just spoke to this guy for 20 minutes. Seems awesome. He will fall for this hard. <laughs> wow, we never done anybody so high profile before. So, all right, let's let's do it. He's like, who's who, who's going to be it? And he's like, Jorge Reyes says he wants to do it. I'm like Jorge. So so Jorge volunteered to be to oh, pretend yeah. like he was deaf. Oh no, he told us a week earlier. He's like, hey guys, he told me and Murph. He's like, hey, I think I can be the, I think I can be the hearing impaired guy this year. But I'm like, you you love to talk and you love to <laughs> participate. He's like, no no, I really want to focus on my work and. And he was really adamant that he, he's got this. I'm like, okay, well, if we, if we do it, great. And then Jeff walked in and just handed us a thing, and it was all about the undersell. This prank is all about the – you can't oversell this. It's all about, hey, it's a competitive team. Get you back to where you belong. I just – oh, by the way, just uh, I need to remind you, we have, we have a death pitcher. It's not really a big deal, but just be prepared. That's it. Undersell. Walk away. 
little, and then we just let Jeff do it. Now keep in mind, Jorge's not doing anything. He's not doing an impression of a hearing impaired person. He's not pretending to be hearing impaired. He's just being quiet and focusing on his work. And Jeff did the work, all the work for us. He would just go up to, he would, you know, he would start conversations with us. It's like, so, how long has he been deaf? <laughs> like, uh, his, well, his whole, his whole life, Jeff. It's how, how it works, usually. It's like, huh? It's amazing he's able to you know, make it so far and do this. I'm like, well, it doesn't really affect how he pitches, Jeff. Like, he, he does everything per very normal. And he's like, huh? Oh. Pretty inspiring, though, huh? Like, yeah. So we'd go up to, he would go up to Jorge all the time with thumbs up and over-enunciating. <laughs> Great job! Way to go! And we're just sitting there like, oh, my God. He went out to dinner with Jorge and Jorge's wife for two hours. <laughs> Still oblivious. Oh, God. He, it was just, it was the gift that kept on giving. How close, what was the closest call for Jeff finding out too soon. I think it was that dinner. Okay, but it was it was very it was not hard at all. Uh, the, the truth was, and this is the honest to God truth. We forgot we were doing the prank <laughs> right. so many times, and Jeff would remind us that oh, that's right, this is still going on. <laughs> so normally, when you would do the prank, how long would it last? Maybe a week. And this one lasted over a month. Yes. <laughs> when did you decide to start? filming portions of this prank for oh. later use. I we well we Murph calls him in the office is like cuz the night before is when Jorge comes in with bases loaded and nobody out and he strikes out the side. Comes in the dugout, we're all going crazy, high fives, just fired up. And Jeff comes in, slams his glove right in front of Jorge's feet. Smacks him on the knee. Great job. <laughs> Way to go, buddy. That's what I'm talking about. Me and the pitching coach run into the clubhouse. We're in Tacoma. We run into the clubhouse. We're falling over. We like we're laughing so hard that we're not making a sound. We're like going against furniture. Like we, we're having heart attacks. We are collectively having heart attacks. It was the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Because again, I forgot we were doing this. <laughs> right. I'm like, oh my god. That's right. Oh my god. It was it like just I felt like such a pain in my chest. To which Murph calls me in the office the next day with the pitching coach. The pitching coach says, listen, that was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. we got to end this soon, though. It's, this has gone on a month. I'm like, okay, what are we going to do? So we're trying to come up with a bunch of ideas. I said, hey, how about I just shoot a documentary, interview people, <laughs> I'll edit it together, and we have a meeting where we say we have a mandatory Major League Baseball uh, video, compliance video we have to watch. So that's what we did. I shot it, and we had cam. I had everybody set up their cell phones all over the place and get shots of, specifically, of Frenchie. And we showed him the movie, and so we made the ending credits. His actual reaction to us showing him the movie, and he couldn't believe it. It was just, and his reaction was just priceless. And he, uh, he was such a great sport about it. Uh, you know, at the end of the season, I had like, I'm not fucking a sign bat. And he just signed, greatest prank in the history of baseball. Love you, Deck, Jeff Francoeur. He bought us all steaks the next day. He's like, you know, I thought going to AAA would, would not be fun and like kind of be a grunt. Man, you guys are great. You guys are just the best. 
So I bought spread, guys. I bought spread. And we're like, God, we love you. Oh, he's just the best. I love him. He was he, he was another guy, a lot like Murph, that you know, he reminds you that this game is fun and it should be fun. I think uh, there is a lot of business to it, but there's a lot of business that you can't control. But if you can just have some fun. So compare your nervousness when you released Brad to your nervousness when you released the Jeff film. Oh, what I, was it called again? On Jeff Ears. On Jeff Ears. I'm, yeah, puns. The highest form <laughs> of comedy. Uh, I, my, my fear was very limited. <laughs> I'm like, I, I'm sorry. This one's going to go crazy. Right. But I do remember the day I released it. It was hard to focus on the game. We had a day game. And it was our first home series, but we were playing in Tucson um, because our stadium wasn't ready yet. So I released the movie. And I remember Randy Smith, who was in the front office, who loved the Brad movie. I released this, and every, our uh, one of our pitchers who had the uh, not pitch our our pitcher was sitting next to in the dugout our uh, trainer our physical trainer and he kept checking on the views because we released it that morning every inning we would come in I was DHing every inning he pull it up we're at two hundred you're at two hundred thousand views deck we're you're at five hundred thousand views deck and, and the best part about this was. I was DHing, and I was a double away from the cycle. I was having a killer game. <laughs> right. And I remember the funniest thing that was shown to me during that day was Randy Smith tweeted out, because uh, he was at the game, and he was our head of player development at the time. He just says, Cody Decker is a double away from the cycle, and his movie that he released today got has 500,000 views and counting. If he hits a double, he will be insufferable. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm like, is my head of player development rooting against me now? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it was the funniest thing I'd seen all day. Um, th that was a great regime of the Padres. They were really fun. They were really cool. They were really understanding. And, um, you know, they let us do some stuff. I, I was sad I didn't get an opportunity with that regime. I got an opportunity, event well, a mild opportunity with the, the next regime that came in. But I felt I really felt like I was a part of that regime because you know a lot of those guys were there my whole time there. We had like Randy Johnson, uh, not not lefty pitcher Randy Johnson. Um, he was our field coordinator. I was with him for so many years. Randy Smith was our head of player development. He was just such a big part of my career. Um, it was just um, I really liked that regime. Good people. That that organization. Even the the last regime that came in. Good people. Just uh, you know, it's uh, a lot of things changed in this game. Speaking of things that change, it's very rare when a manager gets called up to the major leagues in the middle of the season. But Bud I, Black gets fired. He got called up. I remember he got called up. You guys busing up here? We were busing to this stadium. I'm on the bus. I'm like, where's Murph? And I'm look, I text Murph, Murph, where are you? He's like, uh, can't tell you yet, but um, I'm definitely in San Diego right, right now <laughs> managing today's game. Right. What? <laughs> So describe the with all that you have been through with Murph and with all of your teammates and all and all of this winning and all of these pranks and all of this good times. What what is the mood when our manager gets called up to the big leagues? I was happy for. I was exceedingly happy for. Um, I thought that was great. I thought it was a great choice. But I also had that darkness in me going. Murph got called up before me. <laughs> right. Like, is this where I'm at? Seven years, and I still can't sniff the major leagues. But Murph gets up to manage. Like there's at least there's at least 25 major league spots on every team. There's only 30 manager jobs. Murph got the call. <laughs> right. Murph got called up. I didn't. Thanks, Murph. Awesome.
<laughs> uh, no, I was really happy for him. Murph is a great guy. He'd been through a lot over those years, I think, especially with the uh, the ousting from NCAA baseball and and uh, you know what he had accomplished over there in AAA. You know, hadn't been accomplished in AAA for the Padres ev- like ever. Um, so I thought it was a great move. I don't think uh, I think there's a little bit of a culture shock at the time. I think there was a lot of uh, a lot of stuff going on with that team. You know, lot, I, lot of, I, lot of names, lot of, lot of. I think it was a tough spot to be th- thrust into. I always felt that from a distance, what makes Murph best, he needs to be in spring training around the guys where winning and losing doesn't matter. It's to sort of build the bond. And when you start off in the middle of a season, when obviously the team's not performing well, if the manager just got fired, yeah, you can't go in there as Mister Fun Guy who's going to play pranks. When not to mention, you know, that team, the Padres really going for it that year. They spent a lot of money. They brought in a lot of big names. I just think it wasn't. Um, it, for whatever reason, it just wasn't clicking. And, um, you know, to be thrust into that, that's, that's got to be tough. Yeah. How can you be yourself when, you know, these guys don't know you? Right. And now you're this new guy, and then you also have to crack the whip down. I mean, what, I, I don't know how you can do that. Even a guy who's a, had a storied career as Pat Murphy had, you know. For some reason, baseball has this disconnect between college and professional baseball. Absolutely. You're a college guy. You're not a pro guy, but they don't have that in football, which I always found interesting. They don't have that in basketball. Yeah, um, you know, I think if you if you could put if you can if you're a winning coach, you're a winning coach. I think you could do it at any level. It's just you know, it's not that I think baseball players or egos are so much. I think it's just this. There's just a disconnect I, uh, when it comes to college and professional baseball that I've never really quite understood. Um, I just think it's just kind of there. So let me ask you this about okay. So now this. The film about Jeff is out. So a lot of people know who you are. But at the same time, like, you hit 27 home runs for El Paso that year. The year before, you hit 19. The year before that, you hit 29. I would like to point out the 19, I only had, like, 320 at bat. Okay. Um, I, didn't get, I, didn't get full, I didn't have full playing time. We brought in Brennan Allen. Um, so they gave him a lot of time at first base. Um, who, By the way, Brennan Allen, great teammate, great player. Absolutely should play everywhere he played. Um, but I, I, I thought that kind of sucked a little bit because I'm like, well, I'm the first baseman. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to struggle kind of getting in there. Yeah. And But especially after my 29 home run season the year before, I'm like, well, you know, what am I going to do? So how are you balancing mentally that all of these people around the country now know me, but yet, hey, don't forget, like, I can play this game, right? In terms of it was a blessing and a curse. It was like I felt like a WWE wrestler who had gotten himself over. But the company didn't get myself over with the fans. I did it. Right. That's not supposed to happen. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people lost sight that I'm a pretty good baseball player. Like they're like, oh, he's the funny guy. He's this guy. No, I'm a pretty. I'm a good ball player. I mean, I'm a, I'm a 22nd rounder. Trust me. If I can't play, I would have been out of this game. My first season, um, I could play. I could play, and I I feel I could play at the highest level. So that that recognition I got, I think, was kind of a blessing and a curse. You know, I was trying to keep things fun and keep things fresh and interesting, especially for me and my teammates. And, you know, it's just um, I don't know. I don't know if it was necessarily frowned. I think there has been times where it might have been frowned upon by certain organizations, or but really, really embraced by others. Um, like the Diamondbacks have been great. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. I, the Diamondbacks might be, I've only been here a month and a half, you know, two months since spring, early spring training. This might be, this has got to be like my favorite organization. These guys are just fantastic. Love them. They, they treat everybody so well. 
they really they treat you like a person. That, that's like the first. I think uh, a lot of things I get lost, and I think what, that really connects to what you're asking is um, people really forget the human element of this game, and I think that's a real shame because one, I think it's the most interesting part of baseball. Um, that you know, the people on the field—they're not just numbers. They're they're people. They're people who are who have the same insecurities, same same struggles as anybody else, and you know, I think once you lose sight that these are people doing, you know, out there trying to do their best, I think you, you lose sight of something, and um, I think this organization really understands that. So let me ask you about this. When I was a kid, and I'm reading Baseball Digest and Sporting News, and I'm watching This Week in Baseball, and my parents are buying me these books about the great baseball pranks, and baseball always had this great tradition of pranksters and jokesters and Burp Levin and Hot Foots and all of these great things. And nowadays, I don't want to say it's 100% the fault of social media, but I feel like there's a lot more caution in the world and caution in baseball when it comes to having fun and letting the rest of the world know about this fun that you're having. I think baseball likes to I think baseball really likes to have the control of what, what how far they pull back the curtain. Um, so if I were to pull back the curtain a little too far to their liking, I think that they don't like that too much. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of channels to go through. And I understand why, you know, you, you can't be an idiot on social media. You know, it's I, I at this point I I, I, I sometimes struggle to give my actual opinions on things because of an outrageous backlash of people on social media these days. So now, now like, I have, I'm a person who has fairly strong, even political opinions, but, like, I don't share them too often. But if I do even show the smidge of it, like, there's an opposition that is very, very much against it. And it's, it's always a fight. It's never a discussion. That's, right. That's what's always unfortunate. Um, and I think social media has gotten quite volatile um so i think it needs to be navigated i think it should be monitored i think you got to make sure guys aren't going too far i think guys need to be able to police themselves to understand listen no matter what you say it, it can easily be turned against you and you need to be prepared for that um so you just kind of have to have a feel for it um and i can understand any organization because you know you're there for lack of a better phrase, and I hate this phrase about this because I don't think it's totally accurate, but you are their, you know, you're their product. Um, it is a business, first and foremost. It is a business, and uh, you, you know, since you are representing their brand and your own brand, you know, they they need to make sure you're not doing anything to damage that. Um, and I can I can totally understand that. Before we talk about the other organizations uh, that you've been with, um, I do want to ask: describe. When you were told, how you were told that you're going to the major leagues for the first time? Oh, it was, it was fascinating. We uh, had a playoff game, um, and we got knocked out of playoffs in El Paso, and my contract was up, and I was—I didn't get the call that night. I was sad. I was down on myself. You know, man, another year. You know, I, I gave him, and I—I I, I honestly could sit there and say, you know, I gave him everything I got. So I sent out a, a set of four tweets. I said, I want to thank everyone with the Padre organization. They're just they're a class act. Uh, it was like a four thing tweet. And then in my last tweet, I wrote, it was like a two tweet, two part tweet, thanking the people of El Paso. Because in El Paso, the fans embraced me so much and they, they just embraced all the fun things we did. And I remember um, the year before something happened in El Paso that I 
almost, I came off the field in tears. But like, happy tears. It was the last game of the season. I had a really good year, but I got told the day before, like two, a day before, I'm not going to the big leagues. And it really, it was a gut punch. It was a real big gut punch because I was told earlier that I was. And how I was told was really ugly. Um, and so it, it was unfortunate. So I remember the ninth inning comes along. I'm one for three in the game with a home run. And the game's, the ninth inning starts, and we get an out, and Murph just calls time and sends somebody out to the first base to take my place. And the stadium is sold out, and I'm coming off the field, and the stadium is giving me a standing ovation with a Cody chant. And that, like, that was... That was, the, at that point, the best moment of my career. And I will never forget how that felt. And once again, that's Murph even thinking to do that. Yeah, that was just amazing. I, it was just the very best moment of my career, that moment right there. And I will never forget how it felt. I, I mean, I think I've gotten that feeling one other time in my entire life. Uh, and I think it's when I proposed to Jen, um, and she said yes. It was just uh, it was amazing. So when I got, I, I also sent a message to the new head of player development, Sam Ganey, who I developed a pretty good rapport with. And I said, congratulations on the job. Thank you for everything you did this year. Thank you for, you know, um, I, I think you're going to be great at this job. I wish, you the, I wish you and this wonderful organization the very best. Thank you for everything you did. Because I thought it was over. And honestly, a part of me thought my career was over. And I remember the next morning I had a flight. I got on the flight. Back to L.A.? Back to L.A. I land a baggage claim. I'm just sitting there. Jen's coming to pick me up. And I'm just kind of like, okay, well, now it's time to figure out what's next. Um, whether I keep playing or not, where it's going to be, I don't know. I'm sitting there baggage claim. But I get my bags. And I just get a phone call from Sam Ganey. And I thought he was just trying. Sam Ganey was head of player development. Time. And, you know, he's my age. But I get a phone call. And I, th- I think he's, oh, I'm like, I, th- I figured he's calling to say thank you about the text message I sent him. You know. And he texts me, he calls me, and he just said, hey, I really appreciated the message. I, I have nothing but the highest praise for you, Cody. I'm like, thank you so much, Sam. You as well. Uh, thank you for the year. Um, I meant every word. And he's like, yeah, well, you know, you, you've done so much for the organization. You've done so much in the organization. And I know you have so many people in this organization you know way better than I know you, um, which makes me kind of sad that I'm, I'm the one calling you right now. But... Um, you're going to need to get on a flight right now to Arizona. You're going to the big leagues and you're meeting up with the team. And I just paused. I'm like, huh? <laughs> and he's just Is this like, a prank? I'm like, and that's what my next question. I'm like, listen, Sam, I'm in a real fragile state right now. <laughs> right. If there is a chance this is a prank, I need you to tell me now because I don't think I will have the mental stability to handle this prank at the moment. <laughs> It's like, no, Cody, there's no prank. You're going to the big leagues. You're fu- you go ahead and go. You're, are you in L.A. right now? I said, yeah, I just landed. Well, the team has a day off today. Enjoy your time in L.A. today. Tell your family. And come meet the team tomorrow. So Jen picked me up. She was kind of in tears uh, before I told her because she, she knew how upset I was about the night before losing the playoff game and, and um, thinking my career was over. And she was the first person I got to tell. And then we went and told my parents. And uh, it was just, it was amazing. It was amazing. I got to go up there and, you know, see the big leagues for a little bit. And I didn't really play much. I got one start. Um, but it was in Dodger Stadium. You know, I'm from L.A. Grew up a huge Dodger fan. That was pretty special. And uh, if nothing else happens the rest of my career, I could say I, I did make it. I did make it to the big leagues. And not many people get to do that. 
Compare the first time walking in that clubhouse in the Arizona Rookie League to the first time walking in that Major League clubhouse. Different and I wouldn't say intimidating might not be the right word, but a little intimidating because um, this is a whole group of guys that um, there's only a few of the guys at this point that I know because it's a whole like new team, mm-hmm. even out of spring training. Like, so it was uh, some guys were there for a long time who I've known. Like uh, Ian Kennedy knew me pretty well. Um, you know, some guys were really some guys were really excited for me because they knew. The, some of them played against me in the minor leagues. Some of them played with me in the minor leagues. It was just a different experience. So it was just, you know. And then you have other guys who are veterans who won't give you the time of day. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's just one of those things. So you're, I spent a good amount of time trying to read my surroundings and you know try and stay out of out of sight. But uh, but since it was an interesting story that a lot of people wanted to tell, I, I ended up doing so much media, um, and that's actually a big regret of mine. I wish I did a lot less. Why is that? I don't know. I just felt like, you know, I'm not really playing. I'm not really getting a chance to really help out the team much. I think uh, maybe we should keep the focus off me so much. And I, I did a lot of stuff. And I, I thought, I looking back, I'm like, I think it was too much. Well, it's one of those things where media's always looking for a story that's not just baseball-centric. And here's a guy who clearly has all these interests that are outside of baseball. Plus, anytime there's the guy who's been in the minor leagues for a long time, and now he makes it to the major leagues, it's a story. And if the team's not playing well, well, then what are you going to write about anyway? So what are you going to talk about? Trust me, I agree, and I understand. But, you know, I think it might have alienated me to some guys in the clubhouse. You know, I think some of those guys didn't like it. You know, who's this guy? Right. Yeah, but the weird thing is, like, who's they're like, who's this kid? I'm older than most of you. (laughs) Like shut up! <laughs> like the, that's always been my biggest thing about baseball. Like I've never understood, you know, the the concept of big league time. You know, like big league time does not equate to wisdom, right? Even remotely. <laughs> You've been around this game a long time. Some of the dumbest people I've ever met in my life play baseball. <laughs> right. Okay, uh, and it probably helps them that they don't think too much. Oh my god, what I would give! <laughs> what I would give to just ble- be so blissfully unaware. Um, but, yeah, it's just uh, – it, it, I think that might have alienated me to some guys, and it just kind of uh, – one of those things, and it kind of made me a target rather than a teammate. Right. And uh, I've always been a very good teammate, and I don't think I really got a chance to be one. I was just kind of this new guy kind of there. So that was kind of – I wouldn't say disappointed, but it was just uh, it was just a interesting experience. It was a different experience. Yeah. So you mentioned when you're a bag check, you're wondering, is my career over? Now go to this offseason, or that offseason. Um, so you got the cameo in the major leagues. Now you're a minor league free agent. Were you thinking, 100% I want to play baseball? Are you starting to think I want to do other things? Where are you at with your life baseball, and what you're hoping? Baseball, baseball, baseball. Okay. No matter what, I'm, I got a small taste. Now I really want to show that I can do this. Okay. Uh, so what's it like pursuing a job with another organization? They, they called me. Like, that was the most amazing thing. I got a lot of calls, and I had early offers and big offers. And I'm like, wow. And I thought the Royals were the best fit, and unfortunately, it turned out they weren't. Not that the Royals were bad. I loved the Royals. I thought they were a great organization. But unfortunately, uh, they, there just wasn't really the room for me. So, like, I was the 26th guy. I, was the, I got sent down the very last day, the last moment. And uh, that was unfortunate because I thought I made the team. And they kind of – one of the coaches kind of hinted me, you made the team because I had a great spring. But uh, they went with Terrence Gore, who was already on the 40-man, and uh, a pinch runner, and they don't really use pinch hitters. So they're just like, you know, we're going to go here. You're going to go – and then I get called into the office, and they're like, you're going to go to AAA, do your thing, play every day, play first base. You'll be up here. You will be up here. I said, great. And I go to AAA, and I'm not playing at all. 
So I'm there for three weeks. I start three games uh, because they had other guys that they needed to play. And I'm like, well, how did I go from nearly making the team to this? And they called in the office and said, listen, we, we oversold what we had for you. We're going to try and trade you and take care of you. And I was playing really well when I was playing, but I just wasn't playing very much. And so they traded me to the Rockies. Does not work out. I basically get sent here to replace, basically Daniel Descalzo was hurt. And they were injured in the big leagues, and they had some guys here that they didn't, I think they thought were very young, didn't want to you know, get them up yet. So they, thought, they saw me as a guy that could move up. And uh, after 14 games, they released me because Daniel Descalzo was healthy. And that really bummed me out because I'm just like, listen, I know I, had, I only had like 45 at-bats here. I know I haven't been killing it. I have, I have five home runs on the year and my, my 60 at-bats on the season. But I'm hitting 220 right now. Get it. But, like, I'm, you know, let me get my groove. And, but, no, they're like, well, it was kind of – it was a very disappointing thing. So then it becomes – where a lot of guys get caught in this, where you start to live this really nomadic existence, right? Where now you start moving around. Now you're looking for another job. You end up with the Red Sox. Now you're looking for another job, mm-hmm. right? Well, and the thing with the Red Sox was weird because I'm like, well, you know what? I'm just, I just was in the big leagues. I'm not – I'm having a decent enough season. I have, I have you know, like 60 at-bats and five home runs, plenty of time to turn it around. Someone will pick me up. No one picks me up. No one has room for me. It's, it's like May 4th. Like there, there is just no jobs available for me. So a month goes by, and the Red Sox called me, and they said, would you be willing to go to double-A? And I said, yes, 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 yes. Went over to Portland and finished out the year there, but I will admit to you, I was not the same guy mentally. I was really, I was really beaten up. Yeah. Uh, my power numbers were great. I finished the entire year with 19 home runs. And, you know, that was me being at home for a month. And, um, you know, I, I salvaged it a little bit, but <clears throat> my average was down. I finished here hitting like 240, and I was, I was pressing a lot. I was not the same. I was not the right guy. I, 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 I was really. I was. I think I was a little beaten up about the being released. I've never been released, and, and uh, you know, I was so. I think I was playing almost scared. Like I'm gonna get fired again if I don't perform, um, and it's just gonna be taken away from me. And that was that was something that was in my head a lot. And I, you know, I was even talking to the Red Sox mental coach guy. I've never had to talk to a mental coach guy in my entire life. I was really I was beat up at the time. Was there ever a time that a, that a team said to you or your agent, alright, we're interested in Cody, but just stick to baseball? No. No. Uh, not, the, not the... No, my agent's always been pretty honest with me about it. No one's really ever mentioned uh, it might have been a thing, but I don't think it really was. Some guys didn't ever care. No one ever asked me to stop doing anything. Uh, but, like, if you really look at my track, I, had, I don't do very much. Yeah. I released a couple of viral videos, but it's not like it's not like I'm daily out there like filming things in the clubhouse. Right. Endlessly pranking guys every moment of my <laughs> life. It's but that's like one of those baseball perception things, you know? Right. Perception is reality when it's There is one other video that I want to ask you about, and it's my favorite one. Uh, It's the E-59, the play that never happened. I think this is the best one. The production value, the humor, the attention to detail, cameos from Peter Gammons and Keith Olbermann. It looks like that was filmed in the offseason. It looks like UCLA's home field, Jackie Robinson Stadium. Parts of it. Yes. (laughs) Parts Um, of it were there. Uh, The other part with Peter Gammons, we shot that at the uh, Royals facility in uh, Surprise. Okay. Who wrote the script? Me, my wife, Jen now Decker, and uh, our writing partner, Eddie Pence. And we wrote it, and it was an idea I had for a long time. 
because I all my videos were like pranks on other guys or about other people. I thought it was time to turn the tables on me and make fun of me. And the play in question is about where there's a fly ball to right, you're playing right field, you make the catch, you think there's three outs, you toss it into the stands when really there's only two outs. And the worst part about and there were bases loaded. And we were already down by 14 runs. This game, this inning was a 30-minute melee. It was a disaster. And it was the eighth inning, and it, the wind was howling. And so I'm, like, sitting there dodging this ball. And I'm like, i got to catch it, got to catch it. And I caught it. I'm like, oh, thank God. Because it was, it was like a knuckleball. And the funny thing is you say I threw it into the stands. I didn't throw it into the stands. You missed the stands? That's the worst part. <laughs> I hit, it hit off the wall, which means – the ball's still in play, which means all three runners scored. <laughs> Three-run sacrifice fly. Oh, God. You kicked the, uh, the, the, the crowd, Mike. Yeah, but I love that song. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, it was the worst. Oh, my God. It was. I never wanted to bury my head more in my life. It was horrible. And at that time, I was Texas League Player of the Week. That play happens. We have a day off the next day. I turn off my phone. I'm, I'm terrified. I'm like, I'm going to be on Sports Center. It's not top ten. This is going to be a nightmare. Doesn't go anywhere. No one sees it. It doesn't become a thing. It should have been a thing, but it wasn't. I'm like, okay, good. That next week, I kill it again. I get Texas League Player of the Week. This play right in the middle, and I remember my manager was John Gibbons, and he looks at me. He says, "Oh hell, Nick. I guess they don't count defense in this award, huh?" <laughs> <laughs> and then so. Uh, we move on from there, and, uh, you know, I decided to make a move. And it was something that Rocky Gale, catcher Rocky Gale, is now with the Oklahoma City Dodgers. He, he would always say, he's like, Deck, you got your fr- – I know what you did. I know exactly what you did. You have all your friends in the media. You had Keith Olbermann. You buried this thing. This should have been – you should have been your embarrassment, but he, you buried it. I'm like, I didn't do anything, but it's awesome that it didn't become <laughs> Right. So I decided uh, – uh, eventually I got to make this film, and that's what I did, and – uh, it didn't go anywhere. I know. That was the weird part. Is it's the best one. So E59 is a take on E60. And Jen plays Rachel Nichols. and uh, A bunch of our comedian friends played a bunch of other parts. Yeah. My friend Johnny LaQuasto, comedian, he does this dynamite Jeremy Schapp impression. That's my favorite part. I'm Jeremy Schapp. Yeah, we, 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 we decided to make Jeremy Schapp a robot <laughs> that can only say the words, I'm Jeremy Schapp. And... And he just keeps saying it over and over, and at the end, like he he runs out of batteries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that didn't go anywhere. But that, but in terms of just like overall production and like humor and cameos and everything, it was my favorite one I've ever done too. And I was so disappointed it, it just didn't. I thought it was gonna, if not maybe not blow up to the, like on Jeff Ears type stuff, but I thought I was gonna get some. Get some views. I thought it was going to be a thing, and you make fun of SVP in there too. Uh, Absolutely. Did you ever hear from SVP Never or ever hear from, from <laughs> uh, Jeremy Schapp? I, I have heard from Jeremy Schapp. He loves it. Okay. He thought it was really funny. Um, from what I understand, everyone that did see it uh, worked at ESPN. They really liked it. They thought it was a really funny thing. So it just uh, it just but it didn't go anywhere. And then the payoff at the end it was how did this video finally become unearthed once again? And who is the reason? Who's the reason is Jeff Francoeur. <laughs> it was a whole thing where it ended. My, I'm like, the perfect ending to this is if Jeff Francoeur is sending a FedEx package to ESPN and he looks at the camera and says, what an idiot. <laughs> and it, 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 by the way, he was, so he was in spring training with the, with the Braves at the time. It took me months of begging him because he thought I was setting him up. Okay. I'm like, Jeff, I swear on my life. I had to make the whole movie and send it to him. 
this is the movie. I need you to be the ending. Just do this for me. I will owe you for a lifetime. And he did it. He, he's like, all right, Jack. All right. Now I believe, man. I, it's funny. All right. I'm the reason. I like it. All right. I'm like, okay, thank you. I had to call, like, Nick Swisher. I'm like, hey, Swish, can you please tell Jeff to shoot this thing and tell him I'm not trying to prank him right. again? He's like, I don't know, Jack. You've burned him before. I'm like, i burned him, what, twice. Whatever. Right. It's really good. It's, Thank you. Yeah, it, it's my favorite one. Uh, there's a bunch of others, but I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Oh, no. here. You Jen, do have Jen a game. Does a, Jen does a great Rachel Nichols. She 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 was the she was the glue that keep that kept that piece together, and it was just it was just so much fun to shoot and put together. And it, I'm just sad it didn't go anywhere. But man, I really liked it. I thought that was going to be a good one. When was the okay? Bull Durham was released in 1988. You were born in 1987. Yes. When was the first time you saw that movie? Uh, in 1989. <laughs> Okay. Probably. <laughs> um, the longer you go in your career, do you start to relate more with Crash Davis? And the reason why I'm asking this is you've played catcher. Crash is a catcher. Crash in the movie sets the all-time minor league home run record. You're now third, maybe second, maybe first, depending on we have to double, triple check uh, what's going on. Crash has a famous scene on the bus where he says, oh, yeah, I spent, I spent two weeks in the big leagues and describes how glorious it was. You have your 11 at-bats in the major leagues. Are you starting we to We have relate? almost the exact same amount of major leagues. <laughs> okay. Time. We both have our, t- like, 20 days yeah. in the show. Yeah. Am I starting to... Are you relating more to Crash Davis than when you first saw the movie? Okay, here's my issue with this question, and it's not that it's a good question. It's a good question. It's... Have you se- you've seen Bull Durham quite thoroughly? Like over a hundred times. The movie has an alternate title in my mind: "The Tragedy of Crash Davis." <laughs> okay. This movie ends on the most bittersweet thing, where he's re- hanging him up, and tearfully says, "There's an op- op- manager job opening by Silly. You think I can make it to the show as a manager? I think you'll be great." Let's end this question because okay. I'm tearing up, and no, I don't want to. I don't want to identify with Crash, but it's kind of hard not to based on my career. What if I told you? Okay, Mike Hessman is the career minor league home run. Played with Mike Hessman. Played with him in Mexico. Great guy. Great guy. He broke the record either last year or the year before. All the seasons are blending in. Four hundred thirty-three uh, career home runs over nineteen seasons. Incredible. He played until age thirty-seven. Yes. What if I told you that you would never have another at bat in the major leagues, but you would hit? 434 career home runs and break Mike Hessman's record. Where do I sign up? <laughs> I re- how about this? I really like playing baseball. I like what I do. I take that back. I love what I do. I love getting the opportunity to go out there and competing. I love it. Um, I love the struggles as much as I love the the uh, the high points. It's just um, you know, I'm 31 now. You know, Mike got started at a slightly younger age. I started at 22 in professional baseball. I don't know. It's just one of those things where I, I, I as much as I want to sit there and answer your question honestly, um, I, I can't think that far in the future, man. Yeah. I got to focus on now. If you had never reached the major leagues with all of the bus rides, all of the 3 a.m. wake-up calls, all the extra BP, is all of that necessary to justify all the work that you put into this game? I do not know. That's also a fantastic question. I guess it's really cool to say that I, I, no matter what, I made it up there. That is... I think about that as a minor league broadcaster. Yeah, it, if I spent 30 years at AAA, but didn't get 
but never made it to the major leagues, would it be worth it? And I'd like to say, oh, yeah, sure, I love what I do. But another part of me is like, heck no, there's only one reason why you do this. Yeah, I, God, it's one of those hard things because I'm like at a point in my life where I'm looking at baseball slightly different than I used to. That was my life. But now I'm married and, you know, I, I, I want to have a family and I want to, and I see how certain guys, I see a lot of my friends' lives. And what base, what baseball has does to a lot of players, and it makes it almost make, tricks you into thinking your life is defined by this game, and it's not. It's it's really not. And I think that's not a trap that a lot of guys fall into. And I think it's a trap I've fallen into many times that I've let this game define my entire life. And I think that's wrong. That's the whole point of this podcast. Even though it's the first episode, yeah. that's the whole point of this podcast. Yeah, it's just um, I think there's more to th- th- there's way more to things than this game. I mean, it's a game. So, was it all worth it? I've got to experience things that no one else will ever get to experience. I've got to do things that no one else get to experience. I've got to be in El Paso, Texas. I got to be I got a standing ovation from 12,000 people chanting my name. That's awesome. That is so cool. That was better. That, to this day, is the best moment of my baseball career, and that includes going to the big leagues. That moment right there. Because um, I, was, I was low at, a, at that moment. And those fans made me feel like it all matters. Like, it meant so much to them that it was, what does it matter? Look, look, how these, look, look what it did for these people. We finished that season 500, and these guys are giving me a standing ovation like I just won the World Series for them. Man. That is that is something special. Well, speaking of something special and doing something that makes people feel good, let me ask you about the movie Heading Home and playing for Team Israel in the 2000 World Baseball Classic and what that experience meant to you. Um, the experience uh, had its ups and its downs. Um, it, uh, but I will tell you that the there's a lot there's a lot more positive to it than there was negative. I think that group of guys we we did something special. We completely shocked the system of the baseball world at the time because no one expected it. And the movie, if you see the movie, yeah, it, it, it plays in a lot of things about, because I'm Jewish, and it plays a lot into the Judaism theme, obviously. It's about Team Israel. But the story's really not about that. I think at its core, it's a baseball movie. It's a baseball movie about underdog guys who are all guys like me, who have been kind of pushed to the side, not really paid attention to, and we're going to go up against superstars, and we're going to beat them. And you, we know it. We knew we were going to win. They didn't. And it was awesome. And, it, and it was, it's a great story. I strongly suggest anyone who loves baseball go check it out because it is not what you're going to expect. You're expecting uh, a, like a, 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 a Jewish puff piece. It isn't that at all. There are definitely heavy elements of it at certain parts. But this is really about a group of guys who want to prove something about who they are as baseball players. It just they just all happen to be Jewish. And it's a, it's really good. I, I I'm not even being biased here. It's good, it's charming, it's funny. Uh it's good. Check it out. Please do. If you can. I have a few other sort of random topic questions Let's for you. Your pre-pitch ritual. People are not going to be able to see me demonstrate this because they're listening to a podcast. Are you talking about in the batter's box? Yeah, were you? Dugout? Yeah, were you? You know, did you do the batting gloves and you kick the dirt this way and you kick the dirt that way? What would happen if you did not do that? I've had an at-bat where that happened, and I'll tell you why. Okay, so my, my pre-ritual used to be a lot more, lot more intense. Now it's, uh, you know, I step out of the box, undo my batting gloves, put them, tighten back up, spit in the dirt, 
cover it with one side, cover it with the other side, kick my right leg and left leg back just to get them kind of loose and get in the box. That's it. It's kind of short, simple, sweet. A lot of guys have their routines. There's one time where the bat boy lost my batting gloves. So I had to get in the batter's box and I had to have it a bat without batting gloves. And I get in the, I, my favorite thing is I stepped out after the first pitch was the ball. I stepped out and started doing it and my <laughs> gloves aren't there. I'm like, and my whole dugout lost it. I'm like, I step out of the box. I'm like, ah! And the, the whole dugout's just laughing. It was in Reno. Okay. I was with the Chiefs on Padres at the time. And then I went in there and I hit a double. And I'm like, oh, huh. Well, cool. Nice. <laughs> no batting gloves. Dig it. Because uh, I didn't wear batting gloves until I got to pro ball anyways. Uh, in college, I, I never wore batting gloves. I mean, we can have a really long discussion about pace of play, but we had an instance a couple of nights ago before we recorded this where one of your teammates that counts 2-2, two and two, and he gets called for strike three for pace of play violation. And so it just has me thinking about what really matters in terms of speeding up a game in terms of the batter doing his routine, the pitcher walking around the mound, the first base coach isn't there yet, so we have to wait a minute for someone to grab a helmet and run over to coach first base. Yeah, it's just one of those tricky things. It's kind of hard to keep up with, you know. Um the pace of play thing uh, with the shot clock in between pitches only gets a little irritating every once in a while when you're, you know, you're doing your routine and the umpire says, eight seconds, deck. I'm like, oh, God, and i got to rush back in the box. I kind of want to take my time a little bit. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to delay the game at all, but it's just one of those things. It's, uh, it's a game of adjustments, and if I have to make an adjustment because of the new rule in baseball, i got to make an adjustment. Uh, I'm spoke on the wheel, man. I, I, wheel's going to keep on turning. i got to make sure I adjust uh, to certain things and, uh, you know, so uh, whether or not whether I had an opinion or not, it really doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> I'm doing it their way. Right. So it's uh, it's just one of those things. So I mean, it's not the it's not the worst thing I going on. So, but when that when you get a strike three call on a pace of play violation, that that's uh, that sucks. <laughs> that's that really sucks. That might be, yeah, that might be. Just about the worst thing. Yeah, um, that's terrible. I, I'm not a fan of that, but what are you going to do? All right. We, we touched on uh, social media a little bit before, um, and we could probably spend an hour talking about social media, but there was one tweet in particular that I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, of course. Um, you, you tweeted out something. It was probably after Ginny Kavanaugh did her first regular season play-by-play for the Rockies. Yeah. And somebody tweeted back to you, Doubt it has anything to do with gender. If you're bad at what you do, then people will complain. Good going on stoking the fire to get comments, likes, followers. And you wrote back, Oh, kiddo, I don't need comments. My initial comment is more important to me. Likes, question mark, my wife likes me. That's all I care about. Followers, question mark. I have the ones I want. You, question mark, need to learn how to use the correct your, which I love. Night, night, smiley face. I can't even imagine what you and especially your wife's mentions must look like on a day-to-day basis. You think mine are bad. You you have no idea how bad hers are. Um, What she's been through is... I don't wish that upon anybody. Before we get into that, what made you decide that I'm going to respond to this person? Because I people were going off about this woman who announced a game. That's awesome. Like, what's the problem? Who, who cares if you're female or male? If you're good at it, you're good at it. Great. And she did it. And I think, especially for her first go around, her first time doing it in the, the in a big that's that's about as cool as it gets. Um, and somehow this just really rubbed some people the wrong way. And so I, I saw so much like anger and, and, uh, uh, from just insane people over it that I, I, I felt it was important to say, like, if, if you're so delicate, if you're so 
worried if you, I, I forget the exact words I use, but like if if you have a problem with a female announcing a game, you really need to look yourself in the mirror. This this is not an issue. This is great stuff. Baseball should be inclusive for everybody. It just is. It's a game. Like, I, mem- I remember someone said, well, like, somebody said, well, how would you feel if a girl played baseball? Can she play baseball? Sure. Uh, if she can play, why not? <laughs> I don't have a problem with that at all. Right. There's that great hockey video. Can you play? Yeah. Right? If you can play, then you can play. I've, I'm not a female. I'm a 5'11", right-handed first baseman. I've been told my entire career I can't play. <laughs> I can't. Uh, you know, if a girl can play, she can play. If a girl can announce, she can announce. It does not. You don't need to have played to be an announcer. You don't have to have played to be a manager. You don't have to have played to be a general manager. What, what, if people pick and choose too often. What credentials have to be had just on ba- on certain subjects, and I don't think that's right. And uh, so I felt the need to respond to this one guy who thought uh, my comment was attacking the the males of the world, which, no, not what I was doing. Um, I just think you need to just really look yourself in the mirror if this is a problem for you. Natural inc- inclination is to protect your wife. When she gets, as you said, the, the what she receives on social media, how do you decide when am I going to protect my wife and when just let trolls be trolls? Depends. It depends on my mood that day. Okay. <laughs> Um, there have been times where I'm not, hey, I'm not afraid to, I am not afraid to, to, you know, use your words against you. I can do it very well. Um, so it's not my, not a problem to me, but, uh, I also know I, I, it's best to be, you know, take the high road a lot of the time. And often I do, but you know, there, there, my, my wife gets a lot of volatile people on, uh, social media, but she gets a ton of support too. She's wickedly talented. Um, Super smart, um, and she's she's the best person I know. She's not, I mean, just like all of us, she's not without her occasional flaws and occasional things. But you know, it's not that she's just she's gotten a real raw deal in her career, and she doesn't deserve it. And she still pays the price for something she had nothing to do with. So when people go after her for it, like that hurts. That's it's ridiculous. And often I I will always um, I'll, I'll always defend her. She's the best. How has your relationship with her and now your marriage with her helped make you a more well-rounded player slash person? I wouldn't say it made me a better player by any strength, but it, it, it has had me, it has forced me to look at the bigger picture in life. And that's why, you know, baseball is baseball. It's a game. You know, it's my job. I love my job, but it's not going to last forever. So occasionally I do have to look at the future, but I try not to too much because I still got to do this. This is, this is, this is still my career i still have goals that i want to achieve um but uh, it definitely has had me look at the big picture more often so if there is an opening to manage in visalia next summer (laughs) what about 10 years from now (laughs) what if it's uh no one wants to go to visalia what if it's rancho cucamonga (laughs) i'm very hesitant on the idea of becoming a uh, minor league manager i think i'd be exceedingly good at it but i'm hesitant of the idea because I've already gone through all the minor leagues and made nothing. Right. <laughs> um, do I really? Right. Uh, let's start the next part of this. Right. The next, the next step of starting all <laughs> over again. Uh, I don't know. That just seems a little 
too daunting. But you know, it's not never definitely never say never. It's definitely managing is definitely something I've always wanted to do. But it's a matter of finding what out uh, when when that time comes, what's right for me, what's right for the organization, what's where, where's it going to be, what am I going to do, what kind of opportunities can I get? What because I'm a guy who has a fairly high opinion of his own mental prowess. Mm-hmm. So I think I can be a real good use for... I, I think I could be a real help to an organization. I don't know what it could be yet. Eventually. Okay. But right now, I think I could be a very good help off the, with my back. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, I've always thought that once players start thinking about what they're going to do after their career is over, then their their career is about to end pretty soon. So I'm glad for your sake that, you're, that you have that thought. That this is not something I want to entertain anytime soon. I, I, you kind of have to because... I don't know if you saw the offseason. I didn't sign until like February like first or second. It was a pretty scary offseason for a lot of guys. It's it's been getting later and later every year. So you kinda have to prepare just in case, but I don't want to prepare too much because I don't want people thinking I wanna retire. I I wanna play. I wanna hit you thirty home runs. I cause I can. Um and I'm really thankful for this organization give me the shot. We're at about an hour and 36 minutes. Anything else that I have not covered that you would like to discuss? I mean, there's covered quite a bit. Yeah, and there's a lot more. I mean, we, there's so much more. There's a lot of films that we did not cover. Yeah, but I, ta- I mean, we talked about the music band earlier, and I didn't even sing you any of the songs. That's right. Uh, 76 trombones. You want to sing? Or, uh, you know, Trouble. If you want to sing, you can sing. Well, you got trouble, my friend. Right here, I say, trouble right here in River City. Why, sure, I'll be your player. Certainly, I'd proud to say it. That I'm always proud to say it. I consider the hours I spent with a cue in my hand are golden. Help you cultivate a horse sense. The cool head and a keen eye. Did you ever try to take an ironclad leave to yourself from a three-rail billiard shot? I can go. The, I can go for hours. <laughs> I, I can. I can. I can. We can double the double this podcast right now. We could, but we're at an hour and a half, and I'm told the, the best podcasts are about fifty minutes. Well, you might have to make a part one and part two. Maybe there'll be this. Maybe this will be part one and part two. Maybe this will be part one and part two. Well, uh, what is? Uh, I do want to go back to just the um, the off season. Yes. I, I always look at my life is it's like I have two lives. I have baseball season, Josh. When maybe you can see me, and if so, it's briefly. And then I have off season, Josh, where it's like, hey, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. Yeah, and that, that, I gotta say that's pretty hard, and that's actually kind of hard on your home life. Yeah, you know, you know it's. If you're married, especially, that's kind of that, that's tricky. You know, I'm away. You know, me and my wife do a lot of animal rescue work, but I'm away. She doesn't have help. She's doing it by herself. Um, we have cats. We have four cats. She has to take care of the cats. She has to be at home. It's just uh, it's tricky. You know, because life happens, and you know, when I have to leave for six, seven months out of the year, you know, the, she has to make a lot of unfortunate sacrifices she gets to work and do everything she wants to do but it's hard to be away from the people you care about as long as we are um but it's just kind of you get so used to it that you forget you know you forget what that's like having this dual life scenario and what it does to you you know to the people you care about your friends your family that you don't see for a lot of the year and a lot of them are very supportive and very excited for you but you know it, it can be tricky too the time that I always get the most melancholy is Memorial Day. For whatever reason, Memorial Day, I think the isotopes have been on the road all six years for me during Memorial Day. And so all of my coworkers are out, and they're having fun, and wherever we are on the road, 
fans are packed. They're barbecuing. We were in Sacramento one year, and there's all these boats going by on the Sacramento River, and everyone's having the time of their life and like, yeah, I love what I do, but man, there's just something about Memorial Day weekend that just makes me go, hmm, that's what other people do. Yeah, it doesn't. I, I, that doesn't bother me as much. It's Fourth uh, of July is a bigger one for me. Uh, my family goes to you know Catalina Island all the time because you know I spent a good amount of my life there, um, and uh, you know it's actually my wife and I's kind of what we consider like our official anniversary. So last year during Fourth of July, I don't think we got to spend it together, and that was kind of hard because she had stuff she had to do, and we're also preparing for a wedding, so we're trying not to spend too much money on flights so we can save money. Um, it was just, uh, you know, that's, I think, uh, it, it's tricky. It's tricky. I, you know, I try to fly, fly my wife and my parents out as much as I possibly can to see them and uh, keep some sort of normalcy to this crazy thing we do. But it's just, it's part of it. It's part of it, especially when you're in the minor leagues. If you're in the big leagues, I mean, the, the, everything's pretty, a lot easier. Right. Oh, there's a problem. Let's just throw some money at it. <laughs> right. We're good. Problem solved. Yeah. Uh, but you know, at this level, you know, I gotta gotta save that money a little bit. I gotta, I got, I got some credit card debt. I gotta pay down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh but it's, it's had this career has had its ups and its downs, but I it, every second has been worth it because it's put me in certain situations where I've met people that matter the most to me. Um, you know, me and my wife have a lot of mutual friends, but if I didn't do what I do, would I have ever met her? Um, did you guys really meet on Twitter? Yeah, we did. Is that right? It was by accident. It was entirely by accident. And it just turns out when people found out we were talking to each other, just they were like, oh, you two should totally meet. You guys would hit it off. And we did. And, um, sh- you know, would I have met my wife if I didn't play baseball? I don't know. Probably not. Um, you know, this game has given me a lot of experiences, uh, a lot of knowledge. A lot of things that I know not to do ever again, um, but it, I, every moment has been worth it, and I, I love what I do. I love this game, and I've loved being a part of it. I've loved playing for every organization, even the ones I didn't like. I loved it because I got to learn things. I got to learn the type of player and guy I want to be and how to treat others and how to sometimes hold myself accountable when I'm not, when I'm not at the standard I feel I should be at. Is it harder to hold yourself to that standard when you're not performing the way that you would like or when you don't even get a chance to play and still being that happy, good teammate? There are good days and bad days. There are days, you know, when, you, you know, when you're not really the organization's guy for whatever reason. You know, they got other guys, 40-man guys, this. Because AAA is an interesting scenario. And me, like you said, I'm that nomadic player that's kind of going around for a new organization every year. Um, you know, it's... But even when I was with the Padres, I was really never anybody's guy. No one really ever put their stamp on me as the guy. So it's kind of a – you just kind of got to roll with the punches, got to grind it out and wait for your opportunity. There are days where you're good. There, there can be days where, you, where you're not quite as good. And when you're not quite as good, that's the day that you really need to hold yourself to a better standard. And you really got to look yourself in the mirror and say, hey, there, you have to do what's asked of you. Plain and simple. That's your job. And I know it's hard, and I know with sometimes that scenario can affect your stats. And cause stats are the end-all, be-all, which they shouldn't be. But, you know, it's just one of those things where you just got to, you know, work through it and be a better person, be a better teammate. It's those days where you need to focus on being a better teammate. 
think that's a good place to end it on. Okay. Thanks, Cody. No, thank you. This was actually great. It was very therapeutic. It was a lot cheaper than getting a therapy session. <laughs> well, just wait till I send an invoice to the visitor's clubhouse here at Isotope no. Park. No, no, my dues are already high enough. <laughs> All right, Cody, once again, thank you so much. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Once again, this has been Life Around the Seams.